We went last night to see uh, a soldier's play. Have you seen that movie? A soldier's story. I like that. I like that movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I had no idea. I never even heard of it. And I pulled it up yeah. afterwards. And I was like, wow, that is a stacked cast. It is. It um, is. And uh, what do you think of the play? It was really good. Uh, Norm Lewis played the played the lead, but uh, the guy who played the like the older like the sergeant, the victim, uh, was really good. And then we we looked it up uh, on the way home, and some I think Sony's doing a mini series of it with David Allen oh, Greer good. playing the sergeant. Yeah. Well, because David Allen Greer, they did a they did a revival not long ago, and Greer was in the revival, and he played that same character. I think won a Tony for mm-hmm. it. But the thing about it too is that Greer was in the original production of the show back in the eighties um, with Denzel. And Robert Samuel Townsend. Jackson, Robert Townsend, yeah. Samuel Jackson was in the original production, but didn't get brought over to the movie. Oh, wow. But it was. Yeah, because Denzel, Den- they always joke like, yeah, we did a play back in the day, but they didn't bring him over for the film. Um, yeah, I really like that's an underrated movie. I really like that movie a lot. Um, um, it was it's the actor who was in Ragtime that I'm blanking on his name, um, who plays the main character. Um I feel like it's Rollins for some reason. Yeah, Howard Rollins, um, really good in the in, in the in the movie. It's mm. it's, it's one of a, a very much underrated because it's like a courtroom drama type thing, but but kind of an investigation. It's very like military esque and everything. It's really good. Oh yeah, and I I'm excited to see Greer in a role like that, like for TV because he's an actor who I think's been around for a while and is super talented and like I think's only known for his like comedic stuff, mm-hmm. but it's just so versatile and and can do he was in the whiz musical back in the that the live version of the whiz um yeah i, I I'm, I'm happy that's getting getting the reappraisal in some way hopefully people will find the movie too um that was your last night thomas my last night <laughs> i was with bill simmons watching wrestlemania nice no um bill, bill simmons i saw later uh no so i went to wrestlemania night one uh great show Really great show. SoFi Stadium, really great uh place. Um, I feel like I won't say names, but like it was a it was a, an event to get in the building because it I spent okay, and this I don't mean to brag, <laughs> but I got in a I got into WrestleMania and I wound up with floor seats by the end of it, not when it started. Uh and I only paid six bucks while I was there the entire time. Wow. To get a diet to get a diet pet. <laughs> That was the only thing I paid money on. So we we had I had a friend who had, who had kind of access to get in, get tickets into it. And again, I'm so sorry to brag about this. I don't mean to. Uh, I, I, I this is not an everyday thing for me. <laughs> it was a very lu- struck of lu- a stroke of luck here. Um, so a buddy of mine deals with him on a certain production, and he got us in. He got these he got these bracelets to get into the to the actual event, and we only had two, we had two bracelets and three people, Thomas. So, uh, we had to get creative mm-hmm. with how to get everybody, get the, the, us in. Now, by the end of the night, we all had seats. Um, but for a while, we were sitting up towards the top. And then we, we got two seats on the floor and worked our way down. And we were trying to kind of trade off to where one of us had the walk, the, the bracelet. We could, basically could walk around anywhere at SoFi Stadium wow. with it. Like, you couldn't go backstage, but you can basically get in anywhere. Like, oh, well, yeah, we're on staff here, mm-hmm. and we could get in anywhere. Got the free catering there. It was a beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, we got down to um, got down to the floor, 
And my buddy, he was like, I'm going to walk around for a bit and I'll come back because we didn't know how many extra seats were there because it was weird. You got to the floor and there are a lot of empty seats on the floor. Like people were like just walking around a lot that were on the floor. And my buddy came back and as he came back, security came and was like, hey, we don't recognize the color of your band. Like you have to, we have to sing you back up there. And I just ignored him. Like, 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 like my buddy who was getting basically thrown out, I was like, nope, I'm going to sit right here. Because he got to go backstage and meet John Cena. I didn't get to do that. I'm going to watch this from the floor. Um, and uh, he, he he had to basically go back up towards the top and got to get to watch it. And then he got back, he came back down later. But yeah, security people there, they were like, uh, we don't know this color bands. Even though it's like probably the top band there. They were just like, we don't know this color, so you can't be here is what it was. Uh, but we ended up for the last or the last three or four matches got to be like eighth row on the floor and i wow. was like this is amazing i'll never experience this again in my life probably <laughs> and then uh, there's bill simmons there's maria menudos right there just watching watching pro wrestling um it's a wonderful time wonderful time thomas i know you're not a big wrestling fan you like the royal rumble yeah i do like the royal rumble not- <laughs> that was fun hey man yeah, i'm like uh, I, i'm I, I, anything live is is an experience you know it's, it's an experience things. it really is it's really it's a great like because watching that's the thing watching wrestling and not this is not a wrestling podcast but watching wrestling on tv is one thing and watching wrestling in a live arena is just a vastly different experience like you you, you become you really become a part of the show yeah. and that and um any kind it, of live entertainment really just, i'm always down for except maybe i've always said i feel like going to the olympics would maybe you know like <laughs> Like, you know, some of the things would be like, oh, yeah, if you could go watch like a curling match or like, I don't know, competitive skating or something. But what if you went to see like bobsled and you just stand yeah, at this? Yeah, because you're just in one spot. <laughs> you just stand at this one spot and then you go, Vroom. okay, cool. Vroom. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. I get that. That'd be that'd be difficult to, to I mean, unless you're there the entire time. So you're like, oh, let me go see the bobsled thing. I mean, did bobsled have a lot of people show up to their stuff? No, like, I don't know. There's always people probably standing some, along. There's always people. But I don't know if like if it's a lot of people in terms of other sports. But yeah, other than that, um, any kind of live sporting event or entertainment, I'm gonna go to even if I'm not interested in uh in who's competing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was great. John Cena opened the night, lost. It happens, you know. Mm. He did it he, he did it for the he's, business. He's getting old. He's getting old. He's getting old. He, he he likes putting younger guys over, is what it is. Mm. What he does a lot of time. Uh but he, he John Cena, just a wonderful human being. I'll say that. Wonderful human being. The, the most make a wish per uh, he's done the more more make a wish than any, any anybody alive or like in, in their entire history it's like almost 700 make a wish things wow. or something like that it's it's crazy and and then part of his entrance he, entrance last night he had a bunch of of kids through make a wish that came out with him oh, nice. uh, when he did his entrance so it was it was it was nice and that opened the show um but yeah great event it was it was, it was a childhood dream come true for me um and I paid six bucks nice. um I, I I might be going tonight uh, I will probably be paying a lot more than six bucks, so it's 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 gonna average out. It's gonna average out. Yeah, you gotta um, get some merch. I, I, yeah, I spent, I got, I I spent more sh- than that on Dungeons and Dragons merch at the theater this weekend. <laughs> yeah, I got, merch is like, oh, do I want to spend one hundred twenty five dollars for that belt? I don't, but someone will. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna buy a shirt tonight if I get to go. If I get to go. Um, uh, but but again, just to say. We had tickets by the end of it. We didn't. <laughs> we just had to get in there somehow in a different way. Um, but yeah. So, but enough about wrestling. Uh, we finished off movies on movies last month, and this month we're doing one of our special 
director series. So Thomas, you picked this filmmaker for this month. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Catherine Bigelow, who's somebody that you and I both really appreciate a lot of her movies. And mm-hmm. I feel like uh, suffered a little bit from from releases of some of her films and, and not getting into the streaming age. Uh, yep. But I'm starting to see you're starting to see a lot more discourse about her earlier work. So so I think it's it's uh, yeah becoming more available. And so I was looking forward to diving in and, and kind of watching everything all the way through because there's some I haven't seen. Yeah, this is one coming into it. I had seen like half of her movies is the thing. Like I'd seen like a lot of the big ones at the end and then kind of, you know, the big like point break in near dark. Mm hmm. So I've always been uh, wanting to dive into things like Blue Steel or Strange Days or The Loveless, mm-hmm. some of which we'll talk about today, uh, because I always heard like stories about them and like how like even though they might some of them like say The Loveless example where it's kind of a rough around the edges, very directorial debut film, it's still visually stunning. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been kind of excited to revisit that. And when when I became aware of her, it, with I think a lot of people did, at least our age, um was with the hurt locker Mm -hmm. i think that was the big one where she kind of got big because she won the oscar for best director was the first woman to win an oscar for best director um and yeah she's kind of did that did zero dark 30 did detroit and 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 this kind of late 2010s down to this covid world we haven't really seen anything from her since detroit Mm -hmm. and she's one like you said she's made a lot of good movies but a lot of them have been, I think, hampered by either just poor releases or just kind of box office, like lower than expected box office grosses, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but always praised for her directing, I think, with even those like low box office gross films. Um, so, yeah. So so coming into this with Bigelow, I guess, what do you what did you expect to to or what you want to explore i guess is the thing what do you want to explore what were you expecting yeah i I think she's someone you know you can obviously pinpoint kind of the errors of her filmmaking because i had seen kind of the hits of each era yeah like i'd seen uh i'd seen near dark i'd seen uh point break i'd seen i've seen most of her later i saw Widowmaker and Mm -hmm. uh and then you know hurt locker kind of ushered her into this like modern war period and she did uh zero dark 30 and and Mm -hmm. so i i I knew the big ones and i knew kind of what her style was in those big ones but as you and i have always found in doing these director months you you start to see the the connections and the smaller details when you take them all and especially when you do it in a row so yeah i wanted to get into the ones that were in between i knew you know there's a pretty pretty decent uh gap between near dark and and point break and and she did some stuff and and collaborated with cameron and and so was just very curious to to see her development as a filmmaker and see because you know it's something when you watch point break and then you watch hurt locker you're like how how did we get from from here to there so so to be able to take that journey is is what i was most looking forward to yeah yeah same and i've always been fascinated by how to put this it's like being a female filmmaker which as we'll talk about she i don't think she likes being classified as that because <laughs> she's a filmmaker and then i agree she is a filmmaker but it was someone sent me something a while back of like 
the uh, movies that won Best Picture that had a uh, percentage of women who talked in the movie like like basically mm-hmm. how much of the dialogue was spent with women characters how much was male characters and the one that had the least amount a tie for the least amount of women characters was the hurt locker <laughs> and i told the person i goes the irony of this is that the only one of this list that was directed by a woman is the one that has like z- almost like two women like, like less than 10 minutes of a woman talking in it mm-hmm. and they were kind of surprised by that and so coming into this i really wanted to explain explore how Bigelow because I know a lot of her movies are very male dominated films I think in some cases point break it's almost like a a, a, almost like a bromance weirdly it's a it's a weird kind of dynamic Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to see how she explored I guess masculinity in these in these movies and in her worlds and how she kind of tackled them but not even just that but looking how she did how were there differences or similarities when she did that with, say, Willem Dafoe and the Loveless to Jamie Lee Curtis in Blue Steel to Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty? I was, I'm intrigued to see how she tackles it with in terms of her style and kind of what she's trying to say, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, because I, I find that fascinating in a way. And maybe I shouldn't find it fascinating. Maybe that's the problem with me. But I, I, I just I, it's, it's just it's sometimes weird to see that uh a a woman director and this is kind of then the thing is when reading up on her this is what she's been kind of people don't understand why she's doing these very violent movies and i'm not asking that question i just want to see what interests her about these type movies Mm -hmm. is the thing and that's what that's why i've been wanting to find out um so yeah and i think this week because we're talking about her early films i think deal with a lot of the stuff we're we're talking about here um, because we're talking about today the Loveless, Near Dark, and Blue Steel. Uh, the Loveless is streaming on Canopy. If you want to mm-hmm. watch it, just to give you guys all the feedback. I, the, I the, couple, like two weekends ago walked down to my local library and got my library card because my previous library card from my hometown oh, yeah. uh, they stopped doing Canopy. So oh, walked down, those, oh, got man. a got a new library card, new Canopy account. Yeah. Well, that's good because it's can't can't be great service. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I, I yeah, but but Loveless is there. Uh, Near Dark, it says it's on Shutter, but I don't think it is. They tried searching for it. Um, and so uh, so if you can find it, that's great. And then Blue Steel is streaming on Tubi TV, Plex TV as well for free, and Vudu for free. Um, but those are three we're talking about today. And I guess let's just dive into um kind of the early beginnings of Catherine Bigelow because I think like any director as we've talked about Thomas I think this early beginnings will shape her as a filmmaker and also I think it'll better help us better understand why like how why she makes the film she does Mm -hmm. and thematically and I think visually visually will be a very big key here because I think Bigelow is a very is an incredibly talented visual director um and I think she's underrated in that um, in, in that regard. Um, so Catherine Bigelow was born on November 27th, 1951 in San Carlos, California to Gertrude and Ronald Bigelow. Gertrude was a librarian and Ronald was a manager of a paint factory. Catherine was their only child. And when talking about growing up as an only child, she said, what's interesting is that your parents become your peers as opposed to some sort of other, of sort of the other, basically. 
So more of your friends, less your parental guardians. Also, a lot of the a lot of these quotes and stuff I'm pulling for and coming the back information is from a book, uh, Catherine Bigelow interviews. Hmm. Get the actual name of who did it. Um, edited by Peter Keogh. That's not Riley Keogh's father or father. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't. I don't think. I don't, I don't think, think so. Peter. Uh, Peter Keogh. It's it's edited by. It's a lot lot of different. Lot of different uh, interviews. Um, Danny. Danny uh, was her dad. Danny was that. Yeah. He was in uh, uh, the lodge. Go listen to our lodge, the lodge. episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plug, plug that one. <laughs> you might get a few plugs from some of our episodes previously this month. Um, but yeah, so I'm reading a lot. I'm reading a lot in there. So the interviews with her, also some other interviews she did. We'll talk about later. Um, but yeah, it seems at some point the Bigelows moved from Northern California to SoCal because she ended up going to high school at Sunny Hills High School, Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, California, and Sunny Sunny Hills, uh, Thomas. A lot of famous alumni. Oh yeah, like where I'm from, not a lot of famous people went to my high school. Mm-mm. Um, but uh, from from Sunny Hills, Shane Black, Jackson Brown, mm-hmm. uh, Kelly Freeman Craig, who was the writer and director of Edge of Seventeen, mm-hmm. um, and David S. Ward, writer of The Sting and writer and director of Major League. So a lot of like, I mean, it's kind of in the SoCal, like I think, like damn like orange county area or down that that way i don't know that 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 area that well um i mean a lot lot, lot of uh artists that came out of there so after graduating high school Catherine enrolled in sam in the san francisco art institute where she studied painting uh she would graduate in 1972 with a bachelor of fine arts um before graduating when she was 19 years old she was offered a fellowship at the whitney museum of american art program in new york city uh, her advisors they arranged from the famous sculptor Richard Sira, uh, visual artist uh, Richard Rosenberg. I apologize if I butchered any of these names. And writer Susan Sontag. Mm. Um, she joined the Conceptual Art Collective, Art and Language, and soon began working with uh, Vito Akanasi. Um, I apologize for butchering that one as well. Uh, on some forms of video art as she continued painting, Bigelow was living her life as a starving artist in Manhattan in the 1970s. She would crash at other people's lofts or artists' lofts and apartments. She also did several odd jobs, including fixing an up, fixing up an apartment with up-and-coming composer Philip Glass. Oh, wow. So they were friends. Bigelow said she did the drywall and Glass the plumbing uh, for this. So while working um, kind of in the video art world, Bigelow soon discovered movies as a possible avenue for her. She said that she was becoming dissatisfied with the art world, feeling it it had become very political and elitist is what she was saying. Um, So she soon decided to transition to making films. But as Bigelow would say, she didn't know much about movies. So she ended up basically consuming as many films as possible. She said she watched a lot of international films, a lot of noir films, and also because she was living in New York City in the 1970s, she was seeing a lot of B-movie and grindhouse films during the kind of golden era of 42nd Street movie theaters because back in the day in the 60s into the 80s, 42nd Street was big for their like grindhouse pictures and low-budget, mm-hmm. um, like violent action-like films. So and 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 sexualized films as well. Uh, when looking back on her influences, Bigelow would list several filmmakers uh, who inspired her in some way: Howard Hawks, Walter Hill, John Ford, Sam Peckinpah, Martin Scorsese, Akira Kurosawa, Oliver Stone, Douglas Sirk, Nicholas Ray, and James Cameron. 
She would also later say female directors like uh, Randa Haynes and Penny Marshall were influences her influences on her as well. In 1976, Bigelow would somehow wrangle a group of friends to try and make a short film. She said she wanted to make a film that that examined how violence could be seductive. This would become a short film called Setup, which maybe maybe a, a reference to the setup with uh, uh, with um uh, why I'm blanking on his name. Oh yes, I watched that recently. Why, why am I? Yeah, I know you did. Why am I blanking? On, why am I all of a sudden just blanking completely? Robert Ryan. Right, right. I was like, I was about to say Robert Wise, who directed it, but Robert Ryan, yes, the actor. Oh my god, I sh- <laughs> my classic film card should be revoked for that one. Um, but feels like, feel almost like that because basically it's about two men beating each other up in an alley as a lecture is played over the fighting, kind of examining the fighting. Hmm. Uh, Bigelow would soon run out of funds for the film, and she would submit the finished unfinished work to Columbia University in hopes of being accepted in their film program so she could gain the resources to finish the movie. It was seen by Oscar-winning director Milos Forman, uh, director of uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, Amadeus. Uh, he was the co-chair of the school at the time, and she was accepted in the program because... He saw it, and whoever was in the kind of team saw it. Um, there, she took a variety of classes from talented professors, not just in filmmaking, but also in critical thinking. That included a class by Andrew Saris and learning about the auteur theory. Mm. She said that's where she was introduced to a lot of films she had yet to see. Either during school or right after school, Bigelow would also begin interviewing, doing interviews for like magazines or books or whatever. She, and this, these two are in, in the Catherine Bigelow interviews book. She did one interview with Nicholas Ray, who directed mm-hmm. Rebel Without Cause and Lonely Place in 1979. And then she did one with Douglas Sirk in 1983. And Douglas Sirk, who did All That Heaven Allows, My Name's an Obsession. Um, it's interesting hearing her questions because as the book said, and as I kind of uh, interpreted as I, I was reading the interviews, her questions kind of inform what sh- who she will become as a filmmaker. Um, at least early on, when she, talking with uh, Nicholas Ray, she asked him about Rebel Without a Cause, and she talked about James Dean, and she asked about how 1950s youth culture was influencing 1970s youth culture, and how the frustrations of teenagers seemed to carry over from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Um, her questioning it almost feels like uh, her early beginnings of her directorial debut, The Loveless, which is about 1950s youth culture. Um, she also asked Ella Cirque about how the media is beginning to shape the perception of our reality and how it's harder it is harder and harder for films to compete with the news, which I feel like is going to become apparent later on if we go through <laughs> her films. Um, so, yeah. And while she would graduate from Columbia in 1981, she began directing her directorial debut. It was co-directed with Monty Montgomery. Uh, who I believe was a a student or a a peer of hers at the time. And it became, it was originally called US 17 was, was the, was the, was the title of the movie. And it would later, which we'll talk about later in the episode of why it got switched to loveless, but later become the loveless. So Thomas, what is the loveless about? Uh, It's about this group of uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells on motorcycles that yeah. roll into the small town and just kind of stop off to repair one of their motorcycles and uh, how it just kind of sends this little Southern town into like chaos, just having the presence of these, uh, 
you know, hoodlums yeah. in town for yeah. for even a couple of hours. And the th- and and it stars Willem Dafoe mm-hmm. as 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 your lead. I guess your lead hoodlum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess is the way yeah, to say yeah, for sure. Um, but it, he he's kind of your. Again, it's it's the way she portrays masculinity in this world is is very interesting. Um, but the movie, how I kind of view it as Thomas, and we'll see if you agree, is like it feels almost more like it feels more like a, a big art installation than an actual film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Visual, visually stunning, paper thin on story. Oh yeah, and it's yeah, visually a lot of the scenes are just I. I read i read one review that was like that that bigelow wanted to create these like almost like norman rockwell paintings and then mess with them so you a lot a lot of these shots are just these like perfectly framed wide shots with everybody in them and then they there's just kind of like very intricate blocking as everyone moves within these shots but like you know it's it's not like a lot happening it's not like when we say intricate blocking it's not like uh, West Side Story, you know, it, it is it is almost like watching a a somewhat moving painting. You know, yeah. there, there's one I can think of when they're at the garage and it's just this wide shot and, and it's just every all these uh, bike riders just kind of, uh, Placed, you know, yeah, pa- yeah. passing the time. Yeah, just just yeah, kind yeah. of in this. And, and she's just kind of sitting back and observing uh, yeah. what these guys do so yeah it, it it's um it's it she's she sets up these kind of static images and then explores yes. movement within those images within the frame yeah there is the one scene when he walks into the uh the diner at the towards the very beginning of the movie and she has this very high angle shot that looks down the, like this almost god perspective of the diner and it's a very empty diner, but you get you get these kind of the the the, the waitress and the guy who's there who's sitting at the at the ta- the counter, and then you have the waitress walk over to Defoe or whatever. Like it's all very just. There's blocking in the scene, but the camera is just observing. In a way, the calm before the storm because it's going to build mm-hmm. to this very kind of um, intense climactic bar scene which I feel like runs throughout two of her early films as a, as a, as a violent bar scene. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, and there's images. And I think the bar scene, the way she uses color, like visually, like the way like the, there's like green and red light in the bar that kind of like hits on Defoe's face. And the thing is the movie again, while paper thin on story is like super sexy. Like it's just mm-hmm. the way she portrays everything it's just it's it's just beautiful like but it's like it, everything looks cool yeah it's like um and you, you can tell i kind of wrote in my reviews like you can tell she's being influenced like you said by norman rockwell paintings i think edward hopper paintings because mm-hmm. hopper hopper always had these paintings where it feels like you're observing people in a world yeah or sometimes you're observing nothing in a world it's it's a it's a silence in a way um and that's very apparent here but also i brought up nicholas ray and douglas Sirk because there's vibes of that in there too, where Douglas Sirk has these beautiful, lush images in all of his films, and this movie has that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and also how to play with the 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 culture of the time and how to kind of subvert it and what's kind of happening. Where a lot of comparisons where people people were bringing up were like the wild one with Bar- Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have this again, 
this like New York kind of may art world, like underground uh, movie scene kind of peeking through as well. The way she like, she's focused on like the zippers of the pants, the zippers of the, um, of the jacket. And it reminds me a little bit of, I think Scorpio rising, the kind of like underground gay cinema that was happening at the time, um, or queer cinema. And yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting as a whole. And mm-hmm. while the movie is again, it's an interesting film. I don't know if it's, it's, a, a, it's an aesthetic film. It's an aesthetic film. Yes. Yeah. It's aesthetic there's some, film. some really, really cool shots in this. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, there's, I, I, what I thought was funny, um, was, uh, uh, the driving shots when they're driving with him and the, and the, and the, and, cause basically what happens is he meets a young girl who's like the daughter of this like rich guy in town is what it is. Mm-hmm. But like, is this really a town? Cause it's like a Southern, like, like area it feels mm-hmm. like, but he ends up, they drive, I guess they, they drive to a motel, um, and have sex. And the father shows up and like, like uh, basically gets her back or whatever. Um, like shoots up the place and then gets her back and Defoe's just left naked on the bed, um, basically. But the, there's the shots of them in the car. This is where you know it's like an indie film because they keep cutting back to the coverage of the the actress and Defoe and they're cutting back and forth. And every time the background just keeps changing. <laughs> like there's stuff of him where it's like there's it's a wooded area and then it cuts to her and it's a clearing and like it's just cutting back and forth and the, and the background's ever changing. I was like, yeah, this is an indie film where they just, they picked a road and just shot the scene multiple times, mm-hmm. not keeping track of where they were at when they were shooting it. Um, But yeah, but any scenes that pop out to you in this film, again, again, it's more of an aesthetic film. I feel like, yeah. I mean, I, um, I think the, I think the, the kind of big finale is, is really, really well done. And, and it yeah. definitely shows you, you know, when you watch that now knowing where she goes you're like oh she can already do like an action scene it's it's not i wouldn't call it an action scene but she pulls off this kind of big fight that breaks out and and guns are drawn and people are shot and and i think it's done really well but it's also still in that kind of weird uh kind of dreamlike energy that she puts throughout um you know it, it reminded me a lot too i think this i think you could classify this and and there's I think there's so many movies like the, the skill tree of like Badlands and then like every, everybody who was like trying to make their own Badlands after yep. it came out. I think this and, and near dark both kind of slot into like mm-hmm. the, the, the movies that, that came after Badlands, but just this idea of, you know, taking idyllic small town America and introducing a little bit of violence in it and seeing every, all yeah. the, all the, the darkness kind of bubble up, uh, from underneath. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, I think, I think the, the scene at the bar at the end is, is, is really, really well done. And, and I think the, um, I think all the stuff at the hotel is, is amazing. Like the way she shoots that the, the sex scene is like a work of art. And, and then when the dad shoots the door in and, and drags her out and, and, Defoe just kind of watches um, and, and stews upon it as as he does everything in this movie, just kind of watches yeah. and, and mulls it over. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's like we were saying, you know, it might if you sit down to take the whole thing in, it might not be the most exciting experience you've ever had. But there are some amazing shots and, and, and there's yeah. some some really, really well done scenes. Yeah. And it is a it's a it's an 80 minute movie. 
It's eight minute movie. I feel like the first eight of the minutes are just credits and and Defoe <laughs> riding a motorcycle through the south. Yeah. Um, and narrating it. But yeah, it's like a lot of the letterbox was like, man, Bigelow was the first one to make Defoe sexy, and maybe <laughs> the one who did the best. I don't know. Um, but yeah, Defoe. It's like you have these. Again, you have this character where. Again, you say he doesn't say a lot, but there's things that happen where he's definitely, like you said, stewing, and probably in comparison to the other like guys in the motorcycle gang, the most um I don't know. I think he's a cold individual, but I think he's still most human if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. there's this idea of like these guys might not be what you think of as like decent or whatever, and they're like hoodlums yeah. and they live on the edge of the law, but then but then it introduces this idea of when, you know, when the dad comes the 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 father of this girl is presented as being abusive and and her mother mm-hmm. like kind of drove her mother to suicide and has abused this girl and then uh when he drags her out of the hotel room she says he hasn't done anything to me that you haven't done before you know saying yeah. that, that he has also sexually abused her and that yeah. just like tweaks something in Willem Dafoe yeah. and that really starts him stewing and and so yeah there is this idea that like these you know these people who live outside of culture might be thought of as like not decent because they don't adhere to cultural rules. But then it's like the people, mm-hmm. the people that are pretending to be decent people are, are just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. And like the way like, cause at the end, cause the whole bar fight starts with like, like that, that guy, like the, with the, with the father, like grabbing a dude by, by the balls and dick, dick, but like, 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 mm-hmm. like in the bathroom, like grandma's underwear. He was like, Oh, look at the, look at the underwear of this guy. It was like pink or whatever. Yeah. And like it just starts this again of this idea of like sexuality and I think gender comes into play a little bit there at the end. So it's like she's analyzing, she's starting off analyzing things that she's going to bring into play. I think later, just in a very smaller way, if mm-hmm. that if that makes sense. But you're seeing the beginnings of it all. I think, and surprisingly, in this movie, yeah, um, not fully formed, but you can tell there's interest there. Um, and again, I think it, it goes back even to those questions I brought up about her talking to Della Serker or um, Nicholas Ray about the society and kind of our ever changing society and kind of how teens are viewed it and how they have these frustrations. Um, but yeah, it's it's a uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting watch. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like you said, not an exciting watch, but a <laughs> a, a, a one that like. Because I think this 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 movie played at the 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 MoMA, the modern and the Museum of Modern Art, art in a uh, New York. Mm-hmm. So it was a big like big like art film that ran in a lot. Of, we'll talk about it a little bit in a minute. A lot of like art festivals or kind of museums because it's so visually stunning. Where I think it's one where you could put in an art museum if you wanted to, and not hear any of the dialogue, and probably be captivated by it. Yeah, is the thing. Yeah. And yeah, and I think I think it draws upon Badlands in that way as well, because Malik is a very similar filmmaker in in that fashion. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Keep keep that in mind, by the way, because okay. that 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 gets a reference later. How'd you get that scar on your face? The night my mama checked out, killed herself. Daddy kind of lost his temper. He used to tell her, I'm gonna give you a smile from ear to ear. 
she just couldn't take it no more. So she did herself in. Bang. Just like that. So the film would begin shooting in September of 1980 in Georgia, uh, and Bigelow would co-direct with Ma Monty Montgomery, as I said. It would last for 25 days. During the film's editing process, it would be retitled to Breakdown. Uh, it would have its its first premiere under this title at Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland in August 1981. Uh, it would not premiere uh, in the U.S. until 1982 at a festival in Los Angeles, and that's where it gained the name The Loveless. It would soon spend several years playing in festivals before finally receiving a small release in New York in 1984, three years, almost three years after its first <laughs> premiere. It was around this time, and I think in 83, where Bigelow actually started teaching film classes uh, at certain colleges, including in one class on B-movies, is what it was. After the film was completed, it would soon find its way to Walter Hill, <laughs> who was casting his next movie, Streets of Fire, uh, and it was sent to him by casting director after they felt Willem Dafoe would be a good choice for the lead villain in the film. Hill was impressed by Bigelow's work that he asked her what she was interested in doing next because he had just set up a producing deal at Universal Studios and he wanted to produce her next movie. She pitched him an idea that she had that she had been working on about gangs in Spanish Harlem and like East New, or East Harlem or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, they developed together. It would get passed around from studio to studio before landing at Columbia. It sat for a while before Oliver Stone picked it up and read it and liked Catherine Bigelow's writing. Uh, and he wanted to work with her on a script about South Los, Los Angeles and the rise of gangs in that area. So she started doing research with, with the Oliver Stone in the middle of the 1980s uh, for this project. However, Stone would st soon start working on the movie Salvador with James Woods in 1986, 1986, and then follow up by Platoon. So this project would basically stall. Um, but... I bring up the stone stuff now because that will come back into play a little bit later. But around all this time with working on these projects with stone and Walter Hill, um, two, they became two big avid supporters of her. Mm -hmm. uh, she was also working with Eric red on a Western idea. The only issue was that it was the 1980s and Hollywood was not making Westerns. Nope. It was soon suggested that her and Red combined the Western genre with a different genre. At the time, the vampire genre was becoming becoming a popular in Hollywood, and several studios were looking to make vampire movies. Not long before Near Dark was initially released, which was her next movie, mm -hmm. um, movies like The Lost Boys was released beforehand, which was this massive hit. So people were looking at vampire vampire films as a way to go as the way to capture an audience the hunger i think came out in 84 which i don't think was a box office success directed by tony scott mm -hmm. but it was in it was in the ether basically so they decided to make a vampire western and bigelow stated that she did not do much research on vampires except reading bram stoker's dracula and anna rice's interview with the vampire <laughs> she said she wanted to put an erotic charge to the material sexualizing the violence uh she saw within the story so that would become, as I said, Near Dark. And so, Thomas, what is Near Dark about? Uh, Near Dark's about a, a Texas cowboy who, yeah. uh, you know, has a has a romantic evening with a girl he has met uh, at, out at a bar or out outside of a uh, was it a liquor store. 
Yeah, outside liquor store. Uh, outside uh, of liquor on, store. Unlike on, 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 like Main Street, like yeah. basically. But she's eating, he, snow, she's eating ice cream. Yeah. Takes her out for the evening. They have a they have a fun night. She's an interesting character, but uh, turns out she's a vampire, and she <laughs> turns him as as kind of a last ditch attempt to get home safely, and yeah. he is then taken in by her. Uh, family, her makeshift family of, of vampires who roam the the south in a in an RV and and feast when they're hungry. Yeah, but he and he doesn't want to be a vampire. He doesn't want to be a vampire, and it's this kind of love story slash romance all mixed within this vampire horror story, uh, where vampires never mentioned one time in the movie. By the way, Mm-mm. it's a it's a vampire story without the without the word. Um, yeah. And this is where, this is always the one that people recommend for Catherine Bigelow to me. Like, this is a very video store movie because, again, similar to The Loveless, it's a very visually stunning movie. Her shots are incredible in this film. And it's a vibe, is the thing. <laughs> and it's just, it's very different than anything you re- you're, you're really seeing at this point in time. Um, and I think too, when when we're really diving into Bigelow, um, when you see, oh, she's the one that did Hurt Locker and and Zero Dark Thirty. Hearing hearing you he, or hearing that she made a vampire western seems just like wait what? And so I've I've seen this one. The crazy part is I've probably seen this movie more times than any of her films now. After watching it for this episode, I watched it not long ago at a midnight at the New Art. Um, I watched it because we we had Jeanette Goldsey on the st- show uh, a few years ago, uh, who was in Near Dark, and so I watched it for preparation for that. I'd watched it in Movie Group at one point, mm-hmm. and I'd watched it once or twice before. So it's one I've weirdly seen more um, than all of her films. And the interesting part about Near, because you'd seen it before as well, mm-hmm. right? So what were what were your feelings about this movie before watching it for this series? Uh, um, just a just another great Bill Paxton performance, really. Uh, he's amazing. <laughs> Bill, pa- Bill Paxton is kind of the the almost the punk rock like version, like punk rock vampire of the group, because it's also like this makeshift vampire family, which mm-hmm. is which is very unique. Uh, and they've been traveling together all these years, basically. But Paxton is just he's a lightning rod. Mm-hmm. He's amazing to see. Um, and that's what I always attract me is is, is that is that makeshift family quality i think him and lance hendrickson and Jeanette goldstein all have like just great chemistry together they're just coming off of aliens uh directed by james cameron and james cameron will pop a few times in, in, in these next few episodes um you also see a aliens just the aliens uh marquee when when he's walking through town to go to, go to the bus station mm-hmm. yep. there's the the theater it has his aliens in the back um but yeah pax is great it's one that it's one that my view of it, I think, is of is changing every time. And I don't know why. Because again, I've seen it a lot. And sometimes I really buy the romance at the core of the movie, and sometimes I don't. <laughs> Does that make any sense? I, I mean, I don't know how like what what are your what are your feelings about the like about the the film as a whole now, outside of Bill Paxton being great? Um you know, I I don't know if I need the the core romance to work. I mean, I I, I think that I do think that that May you know wants out of of that yeah. family and and sees sees good in him and and he sees good in her. So I buy I buy that. I don't know if 
mm-hmm. you know i don't know if they're like star-crossed lovers completely but um yeah but you know he i think he he's a good guy and and he's once he's turned it's like you know well if i gotta if i gotta be a vampire I might as well be a vampire with her and yeah. um and you know and then once he gets the the ability to not be a vampire anymore she's kind of like okay well maybe i can i can bring Turn that her back yeah well. bring yeah. that to her too yeah i mean what i found funny about the situation is that like if he wasn't like kind of a toxic guy at the beginning he wouldn't be in the situation that he ends True. up being in yeah you know just I mean? take her home she has to go home <laughs> like he goes like he lays out scars car is like just a little kiss that's all i'm asking for like then i'll take you home i'm just like yeah i think you deserve it at this point like she's giving you every opportunity take me home and let me go and he's like no not until i get a kiss first i'm like you, you kind of yeah i mean yeah, yeah she was she was not gonna do that to you and then no because she because bigelow they actually there's a section where she gives her a chance to do it mm-hmm. at one point and she chooses not to do it and i'm like or, or even, even like kill him and feast on him she she's gonna let him go and he just has to push the envelope of being like a toxic dude mm-hmm. And that's what want, that's what how they get into uh that's how it gets in this mess. But in terms of scenes, again, every time Bill Paxton's on screen is probably my favorite scene yeah. in this movie. His intro is fantastic. It's it's also just a great intro. Where like the movie starts off as kind of this it's a western in a in a in a Arizona town. Um it's a cowboy, it could be a cowboy romance, and then he gets bit and you're like, what is he? And then that RV shows up and bam, we're in a whole different movie mm-hmm. now. And it's the kind of like darkness and shadows with a little bit of light with kind of these dark, darkened faces and everything. And Paxson's just like, what's the line he put? I wrote down, he wrote a line. Uh, it's not what's going on. It's what's coming off your face. <laughs> like He's just like, he's just like just trying. All right. Later when they're, when they're like deciding if they keep him or not, he's like, He's like, don't pretend you're sleeping. I can smell your awake or whatever he <laughs> says. <laughs> like his lines are perfect. Um, and then they're burning down the RV, which I'm. I get. I, I assume they're they're getting rid of the RV because they were seen with the RV, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like because they kidnapped him. But I'm like, why do you burn down this perfectly good RV to just buy a car like, with all this room to buy like, the small car? Mm-hmm. Like in comparison. Uh, but I love the line when Bill Pax is like. Hey, remember that time we started that fire in Chicago? Like just this like random history thing of like, wasn't that great fire that we started when we were in the turn of the century? Um, but I think the big scene I want to talk about that A, it showcases how great the actors are in this movie, specifically Paxton and Hendrickson and, and Goldstein. But also, uh I think Bigelow's patience as a director but styles the director and that's the bar scene mm-hmm. the bar scene in this film is an incredible piece of filmmaking yeah because there's so much tension in it there's horror in it and she just plays it perfectly as a as a, as a director in terms of shot selection in terms of editing um like i think three or four songs play in full like it's it's a she's very patient with 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 revealing so about each character in this scene mm-hmm. your thoughts on no that's um, I, I think that's obviously you know it, it, 
it's it's different than the loveless and that you know i would tell you if you're if you're curious about the loveless you could watch the like two scenes that we talked about and and yeah you, you'd get it but um this obviously the whole the whole movie is great but the bar sequences is the standout for sure and yes. it's and it's yes. because of pax and it's because of her direction it's um you know it's it's so much of of this building tension of we we know these people obviously are are, are violent but we're we're not sure of the you know we're not sure exactly what their uh how in in what way you know yeah, the, yeah. the way that it goes down if you've seen a vampire movie you're like okay well they might just start sucking on people's necks and it's like no that it's it's more than that it's more sadistic than that they are, yeah. they are serial killers who are also vampires. They're shooting, they're slitting yeah. throats, they're setting people on fire. It's <laughs> it's, it's wild. Yeah, yeah, you, it, it, these you you get this bad feeling from them up until this point, but it's like do they just feed to live, you know, what on what scale of vampire are they? And then yeah. uh you know, Homer pulls out a gun and and uh it just gets worse and worse and worse from there and then you're like oh this mm-hmm. this is bad news he's got because if he, at first you're like oh well, maybe he needs a clan he needs people to show him the ropes and then you're like no yeah, he yeah. needs to get away from these people exactly because it's like again it's like again with with that scene you you see how they all uh, how it's how sadistic they are but in terms of the character moments like you you get a lot about who they are as a character by how they kill someone mm-hmm. you know what i mean like or how they like with Bill Paxton, it's the like he's just talking shit basically mm-hmm. the entire time, and then he uses like the spur on his boot to like to like kill the guy or whatever mm-hmm. at first, and then you kind of have the couple like team up where Lance Henriksen's like flirting with the waitress, and he's like, "Why, why, why, why are you trembling? Why, why are you scared?" And then Diamondback gets the like her her switchblade out and. She's like, why you need a why you need the empty like cup where he's like, drinks on you, honey, and it like mm-hmm. slits her throat. And like, and then you have with May, she goes to James LaGrosse, living in oblivion. <laughs> um she, and uh, which was our episode from last month, so go check it out. Um, but she has this like she dances with them. Mm-hmm. Like, like, calm down, just calm down, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like it just shows you like how they all like what what their skills are of how they seduce or how they feast or kill people. Yeah, and they it's, and it's they all really do it scene. in like while everybody else is watching. Like like yeah. the, the the confidence of it too is just like these people are just gonna sit, they're not gonna do a thing about it. They can't do anything yeah. about it. Yeah, and it's just like one by one getting picked off while like I think I think one of the great, best music cues in the entire movie is when they play Fever. Mm-hmm. Um by is is the uh well, i'm blanking on the name is the cramps what it is that plays it um yeah the cramps uh and that's what just like it makes the 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 it works so well like that moment works so well but they'll have like a country song thrown in at one point um and it's just, it's just wild it's just a wild scene and then and then i think the next great scene is the um is the hotel shootout scene mm-hmm. where they go to the hotel and i love the kind of interplay with that lance henriksen has with with the the hotel manager he's like haven't i seen you before have you been here before he's like yeah you, i try and make it here every 50 years or whatever <laughs> he says he goes uh, keep keep a reservation for me 
Um, but yeah, but the hotel hotel shootout's great, where the cops show up and uh, Caleb, uh, who's our lead our lead cowboy, like saves the day, like risks himself to save the day, mm-hmm. and now he's a part of the family because they've been like like we gotta get rid of him, we're gonna kill him before before he he's just he's he's bringing us down. But once he saves them all, like he's part of the family, and then almost immediately ruins it. <laughs> when they go to the next hotel and his real family is like searching for him mm-hmm. and i won't go too much farther with that but like, i i love when when they kind of all have that meet up in the hotel and just the tension of like what's gonna happen mm-hmm. um between them yeah because he's he's he finally feels like he's part of the family and then they immediately yeah. he's like come on guys it's my family and they're like Mm-mm, nope that doesn't mean no, anything we're, we're your we're your we're your family now yeah. like like you, you gotta get rid of them now and it's just it's great and then kind of your big finale i think to really showcase what what bigelow will be doing later on in her career she has these massive explosions like explosions fire set stunts. pieces the, the guy adrian pastar is like stunt double as he's getting into that car while he's still on fire is like one of the craziest stunts i've ever seen like when oh, yeah. he when he's going through the car during the shootout and he is just fully in like a flame suit and, oh, yeah. and and you know it's because the whole thing with like a flame suit is you set you set them on fire you let them do their thing and then they drop to the ground immediately and you throw a fire blanket on them right yeah this guy climbs yeah. into a he's gonna have to get oh yeah that's when they, yeah, when they yeah. yell cut he's gonna have to get back out of that van <laughs> like that's it's, it's insane it's it's so much so much firework in this, mm-hmm. in this thing but again i think it just it's gonna bring it's gonna it's gonna it's the early beginnings of what she's gonna do in terms of how she directs action and explosions with movies like point break yeah. and other films later. Um, but yeah, just some really great, great moments. Yeah. Here. The fina- car chases, car crashes, everybody's yeah. on fire, explosions, yeah. some great special effects makeup on, uh, on Bill Paxton. Like when his, yeah. when his face is all charred up and everything. So good. Oh yeah, when he and when he when he, oh yeah when they're at the car scene where he gets run over or mm-hmm. whatever, like just so much. And it was talking about in terms of like genre like subversions, I guess, where she does these um that like in terms of the Western idea, that whole thing would be like high noon, mm-hmm. big shootout in the middle of town. But this is like big shootout at midnight is kind of what it is. And as she takes the things you kind of know and twists them just a little bit is the thing. Um, I'll have a quote for that later because that's that's a very uh, purposeful uh, choice, I think, by Bigelow. Um, but yeah, anything else you want to say, scene wise? Um, I, I think it's again, I think it's one where I've always liked it. When we showed it in our movie group, it didn't go over as well because I think they were expecting a very different vampire movie, mm-hmm. and Near Dark again going with her her kind of background in art and painting it's a very vibey movie it's a very aesthetic movie but i think it's a very uh again patient movie she's very patient Mm -hmm. with tackling a genre picture but she still has all the trappings of a genre picture is the thing Mm -hmm. but for some people it's hard to grasp I feel like mm-hmm. not saying they didn't grasp it. I think they had it's not the lost place. If, if you think, yeah, yeah. if you think like eighties vampire movie and you want it to be like yeah. the lost boys, it's not. Cause I don't think they, they didn't get it. I, I think my friends did. I think it's just, they were expecting 
something else and were maybe a little disappointed when it didn't become that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think this is another one that has that like that Badlands DNA. You know, it's a it's a violent road movie about a bunch of criminals uh, hitting the road and and killing as they go. Um, uh, But yeah, it's it's still I think it's it's that bridging that gap between the loveless and, and what will come with like point break. It's it's yeah. got all that patience, but when things need to explode, she knows when to blow them up and she's got the budget now, up. you know, it's with, yeah. with the loveless. It's like she, some other filmmakers might just let the whole thing sit like it does yeah. for most of the movie. But, but Bigelow still kind of has that instinct to, to blow it all up at the end with as yeah. much budget as she has to blow things up at the end of that movie. And, and now she's got yeah. more money and it's like, Oh, things are really going to start blowing up. And, and yeah, and so, yeah, when you when you when you kind of keep talking about patience being one of her kind of key things, it's it's not that that she, you know, it's not that she is a slow director in a sense. No. Uh, it's that she knows when to be slow and then she knows when to ramp it up. Exactly. Because pa- patience is a is a very like it's a important factor in being a good director mm-hmm. where, like I said, you know, when you this is a key moment in this film, I'm going to make sure the audience fully understands it's a key moment mm-hmm. but i'm gonna keep tension throughout it's it's holding on a shot longer it's holding on a moment longer mm-hmm. um it's and i think she does it so perfectly and and that sequence specifically um but you're gonna see it more and more as we go into her filmography and yeah i just i think it's one that it's one that i think there's a reason why it would become become kind of a cult classic because it has the vibes of that where it's a little off it's a little flawed, but nothing out there is really like it mm-hmm. is the thing. Yeah. And that's what kind of has people cap, like really grab a hold to it. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, real quick when we're talking about patience, not, that's not to say that, that directors that are impatient aren't, aren't good directors. It's just, it's just no. a style thing. We, we, we were just talking yeah. about the hunger. I think Tony Scott is someone that I would say always has to have something happening. And, and yeah. m- most of his movies are brilliant for that. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all choices. It's mm-hmm. all choices. And it's all taste. And it's how you implement those choices in your, in the story you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. It's all about creating a tone and she creates a tone incredibly well. I'll take care of him. You can't make, I turned you. I taught you. Well, I turned him and I'll teach him. What's the matter, Homer? You jealous? A little too little to be jealous. Have any idea what it's like to be a big man on the inside and have a small body on the outside? You have any idea what it's like to hear about it every night? Risky as shit, Jess. Who fucks up? It's our ass. It's our ass, May. It's your ass. You want to give him a week? Then it's decided. We'll give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. So this would mark her first solo directorial debut after uh, the co-directing credit with The Loveless. So I guess you'd say it's her technical directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Um, allegedly, one of the film's producer told her that if she couldn't handle it or didn't know what she was doing while filming, they would uh, fire her within the first five days. <laughs> uh, luckily, that didn't happen, and she kept her job. Uh, it was filmed mostly in Arizona. Um, and when kind of talking about near dark and some interviews, she talked about how, or there are two statements I want to bring up that I thought were very key to kind of her as a filmmaker, um, kind of talking about what we've been talking about in this past section here, but she goes, um, uh, first when talking about her love of noir films, she says, 
I think I'll probably always be making movies with dark underpinnings and a main character who's trapped in a situation from which they can't extract themselves. A fatalism combined with an adrenaline with an adrenaline aspect. I'm interested in high impact, high velocity filmmaking. And when talking about genre, Bigelow also says, I think it's important to work with an element that is familiar and comfortable and then take a left turn. And just when you take it a little too far, recoil a little. Um, uh, it's fun to kind of play with the genre, mutate it, refract it, refract it, challenge it. At the same time, it should be experienced on a visceral level too. You should be able to chew popcorn and have a good time. Yeah. I think those will be key in some other things um, later on. But Near Dark would come out in 1987, October 2nd, 1987, not long after The Lost Boys. Uh, on a budget of $5 million, it would only gross $3.4 million at the box office. Uh, it was released in 262 theaters on October 2nd and just very much underperformed, but loved by a lot of critics, praising its direction, praising its mixture of the genres, um, and kind of essentially like saying how visually stunning Bigelow's work is. And especially those same people who were praising the Loveless that saw it, they're seeing this visual artist like basically being born with these two films. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just underperformed in terms of the other vampire movies like Lost Boys, like Fright Night. Um, but yeah, it's still just a very, it's a unique movie. Um, so when questioned later about these, these, these two films, especially Near Dark, with the violence around them and why a woman would be directing something so violent... Uh, Bigelow said, I think women are very interested in violence. They're certainly victims of it a lot, so they're focused on violence. Admittedly, movie making is a male-dominated industry, and within the codes of who does that, women are more associated with emotional and men with the apparatus, the technology, the hardware. But I don't think of Near Dark as a violent movie, but rather an emotional and moral one. So... Yeah, that's her thoughts on Near Dark, and I don't disagree with any of that. I think it's, I think again, she, she, it's a movie about family. I think a lot of times, and the violence is just, just it's the stuff that makes you chew popcorn. Mm-hmm. Is what it feels like. Um, so now after Near Dark, re-enter Oliver Stone. After the slowdown of their South Los Angeles project, Stone offered to produce Bigelow's next project. He also brought on his producing partner Edward Pressman who had produced two of Stone's recent films, Talk Radio and Wall Street. But he'd also produced Brian De Palma's Family of the Paradise and Sisters. Um, The project that they would produce for Bigelow would be Blue Steel, which was written by Bigelow and Eric Reed, who also co-wrote Near Dark. Uh, This movie would originally be developed by Paramount Pictures, but Paramount would soon put to turnaround, meaning it would allow it to be bought up by Mm -hmm. someone because they didn't want it. Um, it was bought by Vestron Pictures, and if you're a regular listener of the show, you might recognize the name Vestron Pictures because it was the independent studio that released Dirty Dancing. So, Blue Steel, Thomas, what is Blue Steel about? <laughs> uh, it's a erotic thriller, I would say, I think. Erotic thriller, cat and mouse game, cop thriller, like it's a lot of different things here. Yeah. But uh, it's about Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays a, a newly graduated police officer, just fresh out of the academy, who uh, has a has a stalker 
who's yeah. kind of gun crazy and uh, is also secretly sedu- is is killing people kind of in her name, but is also secretly seducing her as as his kind of daytime alter ego without her knowledge. While she's I mean, it's a, tra- wi- it's a it's a it's a wild premise. Yeah, yeah. So basically, <laughs> she's dating she's dating this guy while she's also spending her days trying to track him down because he is a serial killer. Yeah. And he's doing it just because he's obsessed with her, basically, is the thing. Um, Ron Silver plays the the uh, the guy who is obsessed with her. He's a, he's a Wall Street broker, um, like stock stock guy. It's funny. I read I read that on set that uh, Ron Silver played did because they were actually shooting because when they're shooting in New York, we'll tell us later. They're shooting on actual locations in New York, and they are running and gunning with it all and so they shot actually on well, on the stock exchange floor for the movie mm-hmm. and apparently one guy didn't realize that ron silver was not an actual like broker and so they're pissed when they're actually like buying stuff he's <laughs> <laughs> like yelling things they're like oh yeah yeah yeah, right. yeah. And, he, and apparently he'd walk they told everybody else but this guy had walked in late so he didn't get the memo that ron silver is just acting for cameras that are in they're in there <laughs> And they're like, yeah, we had to sell it with a guy that he's like, what? Who am I been buying from in the entire time this this morning? <laughs> um, but yeah, so Blue Steel would be Vestron's most expensive film to date, costing ten million dollars. Possibly before it was going to be the biggest budgeted film for Vestron, Bigelow was aiming to cast an unknown for the role of Megan Turner, who is the female cop. But by some lucky chance, the script was sent to Jamie Lee Curtis, who loved it. Bigelow said that Curtis was a pipe dream, and they were lucky to get her. Uh, Bigelow also made it clear that she wanted to shoot the film in New York, as I said, because she didn't want to build any sets. It meant a lot to her to get the location shooting of this bustling city because, and I think that's one of the big, like great elements about it, is that you, you're really in like grungy New York city at this point. Cause she talked about how like she didn't want to shoot on stage because she hated when like you shot, you saw a movie that was like a welfare apartments, but it was like big, huge apartments in New York. that were well done. She's like, I want to be like really in like these grungy apartment complexes. Uh, for these scenes so what's some of your i guess favorite moments of this movie i guess what are your thoughts i don't know yeah i you know i, I found it is a little bit repetitive yep uh as as it got towards the end and they were like we've got him and then it was like there's no evidence and they're like shit we gotta yeah. let him go and then he'd come back and do something bad and then they're like we got him now yeah. and they're like there's no evidence and i was like shit we gotta let him go again um but Richard Jenkins just ruined it for everybody. Yeah, when every time he'd just show up, he'd be like, you have to let my client go. And I was like, and then the guy from Veep was like, damn it. I got to let him go. Um, <laughs> a lot of great character oh actors God. in this. A lot of great, char- a lot of great character. Actors Clancy Brown movie. showed up. I was like, is, is Clancy Brown hot? Was young, Clancy, <laughs> was young Clancy Brown hot? And then he, then, and, and then he is, he is Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, Mr. Krabs. Okay. Um, She's making making guys that you think were that hot. Really hot. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think there I think there's some really great kind of thriller sequences in this. Yes. Um, it, it, yeah, the pacing doesn't always work for me. There's just some there's 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 too many like oh his his guns buried and so we have to like stake out where his guns buried and there's just too many near misses. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's not a super long runtime already, but there are there are some sometimes it feels like it's it's being uh, kind of padded out a little bit. But yeah, that again, the yeah. action scenes 
are all incredibly well done for an erotic thriller. There's some some very good uh, kind of sex scenes in here. Yeah. Um, I you know I'm I I always like uh, yeah like I said it's it's a really really strong character actor cast and yeah. and and I'm as a as a character actor appreciator myself i uh i was very happy to see a lot of these people but i'm, I'm always happy to see elizabeth Pena in, in anything so um yeah yeah I, this is one i didn't know she was in coming into it so i was, I was excited to see her in this yeah. um matt craven yeah, a, lot- a, little, a little matt craven action you know i'm a big matt craven guy where was matt Cra- i missed matt oh, craven the accountant where was he that they tried to set it to set her up with at the party oh you're right and he's like you're was, a cop was matt craven. <laughs> i got a few parking tickets <laughs> yeah and she's like, oh, is that is that your car right there? The, the taillights out? Oh, I was gonna get it fixed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Calm you, down. you have, re- yeah, you have expired registration. Uh, Tom Sizemore pops up as the guy who, mm-hmm. uh, R.I.P. Tom Sizemore, uh, just passed away not too long ago. Um, plays the robber in the beginning. Just like, yeah, really great, really great. Uh, I like Philip Philip Bosco who plays her dad. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really good. Yeah, it's um, yeah, some sequences I like. Uh, the opening. So when I watch the opening, when it's like it's her, it's, you, you hear a woman yelling uh, over black and then cuts in, you're in a hallway and then Jamie Lee Curtis comes in. It's like a handheld camera. I was like, oh, this is point break. <laughs> this is this is this is point break visually. And uh, it's a great kind of little twist the end where or of that scene where like you think she's going in to like to like stop a, a domestic violence case or, or incident and ends up being it's actually a test for to her for graduate police academy and right after that when she's graduating for the police academy one thing i was just kind of floored by is the editing style in some in certain parts of this movie but that scene particularly she they um they do the cuts on the camera flashes so it has this really great pace to it where camera flash new shot camera flash mm-hmm. new shot and it's but showing all this stuff of like she like uh everyone's with their family everyone's with their family and it cuts to her and she's with her friends. And you're like, oh, wait, where's her family? Because these are just friends. There's no husband. There's no parents. It's just like her friend and her friend's family. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're seeing a lot about Jamie Lee Curtis' character in that regard, but also being she's the only woman in this entire graduating class. So we're seeing what's going to be her kind of whole issue in this, and at least the police world, that she's going to be the one and only person who's like herself. No one else is going to be able to relate to her um, as a woman in, in, a, in a man's wor- world. It's a very, again, very masculine world. And we're putting uh, this this female character into. And Curtis, I think, is really good in this movie. Like, even though how I feel about the overall film, it's like, I think Curtis is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like, there's one scene, it's, it's a very small scene, but I love the kind of flirtation she has with Ron Silver mm-hmm. when they're actually, like, kind of... Um, becoming like a like kind of a couple or whatever. Yeah, she, yeah. She has they've a, got great they've got with, chemistry. When when he first yeah. shows up and is and and you're like, oh, he's stalking her, and then he like invites her into the cabin. You're like, oh, oh, he's trying to seduce her. You're like, that's not gonna yeah. work. But then they yeah. they they really do. They're they're very believable yeah. as, they really as a are. couple. <laughs> they I the moment just got me is that when when she, when he's waiting outside her work. And she like sees him and then just kind of like walks by him mm-hmm. smiling and then kind of backs up. And I'm like, God, these characters, I like, I wish he wasn't a stalker. Cause they're like, they're, they're a cute couple together <laughs> is the thing. Like God, 
Um, why do you have to be so terrible? <laughs> um, and what I do kind of like the choice. This is where it kind of gets repetitive later on, but it's it's an interesting choice that in the middle of the movie, when she finds out who he actually is, mm-hmm. they don't they don't really prolong it. She does it very early. And it's a cool choice to make, but I think it hurts the back half of the movie where yeah. now we're playing cat and mouse a little too much mm-hmm. is the thing. Yeah, I, you know, um, I think I think there is the that that kind of like I'm a cop and I know this person is guilty, but I've if if I don't do it by the book, I can't you know I, I can't lock them up. You know, it, it's been it's been done yeah. before. It's it's what diplomatic immunity and in, in yeah. lethal weapon was that lethal weapon two, three. Uh, yeah, but uh, like two, it's two. Yeah. I think too, yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's a little bit too early here because then, you know, maybe if you had that and then like Elizabeth Pena and, and then it was the end, it would be like, oh, okay, you know. But it's, yeah. he, he does like two more things, which just he, feels he like... The, he goes to the parents' place. Yeah. yeah. It just it feels like, like a little boy. too much. And I, I get that he's yeah. crazy, but he's flaunting it a little too much. <laughs> Um, he's a little, to be a lonely Wall Street guy. He's getting yeah. a little too cocky. I also didn't like. need him to be like. I don't know if they're hinting that he's like schizophrenic or like I, I you know, the, the sequences where he's like talking oh, yeah, to he's, himself. Uh, I was like talking to, his, to himself. Yeah, I was yeah, like, I don't need yeah, him to be that crazy. You know, I just buy that yeah. he's a the a serial killer. You know uh, that that was the part is that the certain moments of the movie just get so over the top, mm-hmm. and that's a big moment. He's like, you are like, a god. He's like, who's that? Who's yeah, there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's just it's odd, and then I mean, and then even like the kind of like other killings he's doing, it just like like there's the one where I think he kills the woman. He's he's like he like her her like her clothes are bloody, and he like rubbing him over his oh, face. Yeah. It just feel it feels just really weird, and like yeah, it's like it's it's interesting because she there's moments where she fetish fetishizes a lot of stuff, like specifically guns. She likes to like the really mm. like really show off guns this movie which is kind of i mean it's the point of the movie like he, he's the point of the fe- movie he, yes yeah he is fetishizing it like oh oh like, oh she pulled the trigger like i would because like, he all he relates to megan jamie curtis character he's like oh like you pulled the trigger without like even thinking about like you mm-hmm. like you have the same thoughts like we're 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 close and that's that's the whole dichotomy there is the like oh like cop and villain cop and criminal are so interlinked together mm-hmm is that one step over and you're in the you're in one of the one of the others worlds um take that how you will um but yeah it's just there's moments that it, it it's like you said it gets it gets again taking we talked about patience in the last one i think moments feel repetitive which also kind of make the movie feel slow in moments but like i don't know how i feel about the i know it adds something to her character but the kind of subplot of like the abusive father like it, it gets it, it it spends a lot of time there to give a backstory that's pretty much understood very early on if that makes if that makes sense like it just it it, it, it that's the moment where it feels a little over the top i think ebert talked about that where it's like that plot almost feels useless for the serial killer cop angle mm-hmm. um but yeah anything else about uh scenes um location stuff's great mm-hmm. i love the new york stuff yeah 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 the, the big shootout with like the hiding behind the cars and she's coming out of the subway and and mm-hmm. it yeah it's it's very very well done again the the action always works here so what do you do i'm a cop <laughs> come on really 
get off of there, fire, Jenny. Fire. Are you okay? Yeah, sure. Why? You look bad. Look like you just ate something bad. A cop, huh? Wear a gun? Yeah. You're not on duty, though. No. Can I ask you a question, just, you know, civilian to civilian? Sure. You're a good-looking woman. I mean, beautiful, in fact. Why, why would you want to become a cop? So, yeah, so moving on to the set. Um, Edward Pressman, who was the producer, was highly impressed by Bigelow's style and work ethic, comparing her favorably to Brian De Palma with his work on Sisters and Terrence Malick on Badlands, uh-huh. saying that her her in terms of visual her visual eye eye she was like really fantastic, like Malick in Badlands. Mm-hmm. Um, but Pressman wasn't the only person impressed by Bigelow; everyone on set was. Curtis would say she paints with light instead of just lighting a set. Uh, one out of 10 directors have vision. Catherine has it. Uh, Curtis's co-star Ron Silver said she knows frame by frame what she wants. She cares about the image a great deal. She has a vision. Vision was the key word that everyone kept repeating uh, about Bigelow. So once filming ended at the end of October, 1988, uh, the film went into post-production and, Vestron was aiming for a September release, but something happened. They went bankrupt in the summer of 1989. <laughs> Damn, and all their, a- all their assets were put up for sale, essentially. And the completed film of Blue Steel was bought up by MGM United Artists. And so it was pushed from a September release to a March 1990 release. And also as after a Sundance premiere in January. Uh, before the, the release of the film, they said it was almost a blessing in disguise, Bigelow and others, that they were able to make the movie like almost like an indie film with little studio oversight, but then got a major release yeah. out of it yeah, and absolutely. back from MGM. But even with that, the movie would fail at the box office. Um, it would cost $10 million uh, and only make $8.2 million at the box office. While critically it was well-received, Roger Ebert gave it a good, a good re- uh, review saying it was almost like a sophisticated update of Halloween mm-hmm. and saying the only difference between this and the sequels of Halloween is that this actually focused on characters in this movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just, it, and everyone praised her direction, Bigelow's direction, but it just did not catch on with audiences at that time. Um, she talks about later, um, in term, I think around the time of making this movie, she said, I've had very limited access in the past in terms of audience, finances, options, and in filmmaking. Uh, and in filmmaking, you have to justify the expenditures with, uh, with wider audiences in order to continue. So I want more access. I can't just ask for money to fulfill my own creative desires, and yet I want to be able to continue to make films I can live with. So she's at this point, she's still trying to balance how can I get a big hit, but also not be like selling myself out mm-hmm. as as an artist um so when looking at the next projects on on the horizon there were two that she was eyeing one was she was very passionate about and like we talked about i think last week of the adaptation how it was kind of wild to see um people talk about certain movies like oh we're gonna make these and they don't yeah, get made yeah. Or they get made in a whole different thing so the one she's really in several interviews she keeps talking about 
is adaptation of New Rose Hotel, which is based on a William Gibson story. And it would be this cyberpunk erotic sci-fi sci-fi thriller or wow. film, basically. Sounds great. And Edward and Edward Pressman would be producing it, saying, I want to produce like as many movies as she wants to make. I love working with her. Um, and she wants to do that one. Um the other project she was looking at was a little script. It was at Columbia, and it was called Johnny Utah. And she was rewriting it with her now husband, James Cameron, who she married in 1989. Uh, and, she, and yeah, married in 1989, so it was after Blue Steel had been made. Uh, and that movie would soon turn to our next film, Point Break. And we'll talk about that next week on the show. Hell yeah. Um, so briefly before we leave, leave everyone, uh, what are you seeing popping up here in, the, in these three films here? Uh, for Bigelow's career and and like what what the running themes, tropes, visual motifs, whatever whatever is popping for you. I mean, I, you know, I I kept bringing up Badlands and and obviously Pressman did as there well. There was, uh, yeah. but but it's there's definitely this idea of of like uh, violence is below the surface of of America, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't think I don't think she's the first person to bring that up, but um, yeah. But especially her first two movies have this kind of, you know, obviously set in the South kind of yeah. road movies. They have to do with drifters, uh, wanderers and and the idea that they function kind of outside of the American norm, but also that the American norm is is itself flawed. And mm-hmm. and I and I do think in a sense that that even though Blue Steel does kind of feel like the outlier in those in those two, it, it, it is uh you know, another one about uh, violence kind of underlying the American dream, even though it's mm-hmm. the New York American dream, which is to be a, a stockbroker in the in the 1980s. I mean, that was that was yeah. it. Um, and, you know, post po- in a post Wall Street world, it's like yeah. uh, everybody wants to be everybody wants to be a, a successful stockbroker. And then it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, the pressure might lead you to crack and be a serial killer. It's kind of funny that Oliver Stone's the producer of, yeah. of Blue Steel, having made Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and that this you know precedes uh, American. I think American Psycho is kind of the 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 end point between Wall Street and 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 American Psycho. This kind of falls into this uh, same like like where is this where is this lifestyle taking the people who live it? Yeah. But um, but I I think as as far as the the themes go. It is that kind of the, the she's she understands that there there's this kind of innate violence in, in humanity and that lends itself mm-hmm. very well to her to her style, which mm-hmm. is very exciting and very yeah. very thrilling, very well done action and, and like we said, uh great patience for for knowing when to when to have the action and when to not, uh, which I do think lends itself well to the the thriller in in mm-hmm. uh blue steel um but yeah I, I i i you know you see a lot of things forming here i think we're not going to see her like fully formed until the next episode yeah. uh where she kind of combines that because the the thing with her first two movies is they still and maybe that's why i keep coming back to badlands as well they the, they still feel very firmly rooted in the 70s and yes. and it's not until blue steel that it feels like that kind of like eighties full, like, like near darks kind of combining them a little bit more, but yeah. Uh, 
but it really comes in with that kind of blue steel. And then I think, I think obviously point break is feels very much that way, but you know, I think that's just kind of the way that style changes through the decades. You know, it, it, the, 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 what we think of as like the eighties, as far as film doesn't really develop until like 85, 86. Cause there's yeah. still the fallout of the seventies in the early part of the eighties, but yeah. Um, in, a, in a way, I, I, in a way, I wonder if like because she and this is not I'm not saying this is a, as a negative, but because she was catching up with films because she also I mean, she didn't like I think she was 35 when she did Near Dark is what it was. Um, She was kind of playing like she spent 10, to, 10 years of working in the art world and then was watching a lot of movies pretty quickly. So like in a way, she's her style is still rooted in that period. Mm. If that makes sense. Like, so she's trying the older stuff first and then she's play. She finally hits it with blue steel. Like she's kind of playing catch up, I guess you could say mm-hmm. like, is it near dark? feels like it's early, like late seventies, early eighties horror. And then, and then we're in this kind of whole new world by blue steel. And then into point break next week. Um, one thing I noticed when just kind of discussing all three of these movies is actually her use of location. Mm-hmm. and how it's very rooted it's rooted in each film where we have to shoot in new york it's very specific to new york near dark we're shooting in arizona it's very specific to near dark loveless is this small georgia like is the rest stop or is it a town type mm-hmm. thing um it's all very rooted in the kind of story and, it, and nothing everything feels authentic yeah and i think we're gonna continue to see that in all of her films is this authenticity that's there in location but also in the the world of the characters essentially yeah for sure so again we're again talking about the it's if we talk about masculinity or whatever or i feel like there's with the men that you're seeing there is like a i guess a toxic nature like a lot of people were talking about how like they felt that she was angry at men in blue steel i don't know if i'd go that far i think she's just showcasing uh the downfalls of men a lot of the time yeah. is obsession obsession and and again a lot of the cops are just not listening to jamie Lee curtis's mm-hmm. character at all for most of the movie um i don't think she's angry at men um i just think it's probably just a period of time when films are happening so there's not a lot of female filmmakers mm-hmm. especially not a lot of action female filmmakers like why you, why you hate all the men Catherine? i i think that's what people are kind of taking yeah i i think you know if i think if this was a male filmmaker everybody would say that the anger was focused at the system because you know i think yeah Cl- clancy brown wants to help her kevin nunn wants to help her it's, yeah. it, it even though everyone's kind of suspicious of her at first uh a lot of people come to her side but it's still this like it's it's the lawyers it's the it's the legality of it all we can't we can't do yeah. this um yeah i don't I, I i honestly i kind of expect when i started watching it and everybody was like why why do you want to be a cop you're too hot to be a cop like i expected the movie itself to comment more on toxic masculinity than it did ultimately it did. yeah yeah it, it, it becomes something different by that back half um uh but yeah it's We'll see how it goes. Maybe that's not anything at all. Maybe we're just we're, we're forcing that in there at some point. But I think I think there there's definitely probably some similarities. I won't jump too far ahead between Blue Steel and uh, Zero Dark Thirty in a mm-hmm. way of, of being yeah. underestimated by 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 the the system uh, and so. But we'll get there later in the month. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what we're learning right now. Next week, we're talking about Point Break and Strange Days. Strange Days being kind of one that's been 
in in the ether of late film Twitter because it finally got released on streaming for the first time ever. Um, it's never been given the HD release until now. It came out in the mid '90s. Uh, Star Ray Fines. Uh, Point Break is on HBO Max currently, and Peacock Strange Days is also on HBO Max. So two two movie week next week. So go check those out. Um, I'm excited uh, to dive in. I've been wanting to watch Strange Days for a long time. So yeah, same. We'll, we'll do that next week. Um, but that's what we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at sendationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, kind words. Uh, if you're a new listener to the show, uh, or for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to subscribe to Sendation Podcast to stay updated on all our new episodes. We're currently on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever your podcast. Uh, also, join our Patreon if you haven't already. We just we released a teaser not too long ago on the main channel here about our favorite movies of 2022. Uh, that's just a sample of what we do every every month on our uh, Patreon channel. There's one dollar, ten dollar, five dollar, one dollar, five dollar, ten dollar. Let me get that in order um, of how you can kind of donate to us. And so, thank you so much for those who have so far, and it helps us keep the, keep the show going. Uh, and also to help keep the show going, uh, give us a review if you can. Write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Oh man, I don't I don't have a good one for for this week. I don't know enough <laughs> quotes. I don't know enough quotes for me in these movies. And anything from Bill Paxton from Near Dark, it seems a little too threatening. So too threatening. Yeah. So you know, please please leave us a review. We hope you like it. You're gonna say like, it's not what's going on. What's what's coming off your face? Your face. If you don't yeah. write a review, no, we. Won't. That's a threat. I can tell. I can don't. smell you listening. Leave a review. Don't pretend like you're not listening. <laughs> there we go. I like that one. Uh, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.